WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. Today on the program, Michigan nurses and their families are fighting for their patients, pushing for the need for better nurse-to-patient ratios in hospitals. But first on the Metro, Metro Detroit is home to one of the highest populations of Arab Americans in the U.S. And recently, Nick, the National Park Service awarded the city of Detroit a $50,000 grant to showcase Arab American and Chaldean immigrant stories. Oftentimes, these stories are filled with important elements related to the rich cultural history of Detroit. And yes, Detroit is a majority black city. However, there are many people who found a space and place in the city and has helped it become what it is today. To talk about the historical project the Center for Arab Narratives received, we have Matthew Stifler, the director of the center here with us. Matthew, thank you so much for joining the Metro. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So you're the new director for the Center for Arab Narratives. What is the center's purpose? Yes, the Center for Arab Narratives is the newest institution of ACCESS, which is the largest Arab American community nonprofit in the country that's been based in Dearborn for over 50 years. And our center uh, facilitates research on Arab and Middle Eastern communities nationally and also publishes research and data on the community so that people know you know, what's going on and what the histories are. So, you know, Detroit's Historic Designation Advisory Board, they're using the Underrepresented Communities Grant to do this historical, uh, historic property, uh, excuse me, historic project and document community stories. So what does this in terms mean of showing representation within the vast population of people who identify with being Arab? Yeah, like you mentioned, Detroit and Metro Detroit is known nationally for its large Arab and Chaldean population. Everybody knows there's this huge population and they've been here for over a century, but there's never been a real official historical survey of that population's roots in the city of Detroit. And so this project that the city of Detroit is undertaking, along with orgs like myself and the Arab American National Museum and lots of scholars and community leaders, this is a chance to really find out just how extensive those roots are in the city. So, Matthew, you talked about Access's uh, uh, footprint here, especially in Dearborn, 50-plus years. So when did we start to see a large presence of Arab immigrants migrating to Michigan? Yeah, it started in the late 1800s, 1880s, 1890s. And, you know, they came to Detroit, but this is pre-auto industry. So they, they came all over the state for work. They went to Grand Rapids to work in the furniture industry. They went up to the UP to work in the, the mines and the lumber yards. And so Arabs have been, uh, Arabs and other Arabic speaking folks have been coming to Michigan for, you know, 130 plus years. So, Matthew, when I think about the term Arab and I think about it being an umbrella term, just kind of uh, casting a wide net over multiple different cultural backgrounds and peoples, uh, can you just break that down just a little bit for people who, who, you know, need to understand that that term is an umbrella term for multiple different cultural backgrounds? Of course, it's a very broad term. And when we say Arab or Arab American, we're talking about people that can trace their ancestry to any of the 22 Arab countries. We're talking about people who are Muslim, Christian, Jewish, atheist, secular, you know, you name it. 
Um, we're talking about folks that came, whose families came 100 years ago and folks who might have arrived in the U.S. in the last few weeks. So in Metro Detroit, um, if somebody says they're Arab, they're most likely to have ancestry from Lebanon, Palestine, Yemen, Iraq, uh, Syria, Jordan. There's also folks from Sudan and Egypt and Morocco and Algeria. I mean, it's it's such a diverse community. It's hard to encapsulate. Yeah, yeah. So when we think about Detroit and Dearborn and surrounding cities uh, throughout Metro Detroit in this region, what has the footprint been uh, left within these spaces and, you know, the communities that have been built and, and, and then this the cultural uh, significance that has been left there? Well, I mean, you can see it today yeah. uh, just driving basically anywhere in Dearborn or anywhere up in Sterling Heights where there's the large Iraqi Chaldean community. And you can see, you know, signs in Arabic. You see restaurants and butcher shops and doctor's offices and legal offices that, that serve the community. And you, and you see mosques and churches and you can see the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn. And, and, and you just see lots of people. It's a very um, vibrant community. It's a very young community. And it's growing. Uh, it grows every time we see new numbers. The community is just getting larger and larger. So when we think about young people, especially like you said, it's young, it's vibrant, it's growing across the, the, the region. What does it mean today to have these stories told, especially when we're using young voices? Yeah, because, you know, we forget a lot of the history, especially when it's not there. And yeah. I think the young people, if their parents were immigrants or their grandparents were immigrants, they might hear tales of, oh, we used to hang out in at this restaurant in Detroit in the 1940s or 50s. But that, that history hasn't been recorded, so there's nowhere to turn to actually see it all and, and to bring those stories to life for the youth to carry that forward. And so it's very important that we we look back and make sure the roots are detailed and um, so that we can carry that into this this next generation, which is going to just keep getting bigger. It continues to grow and continues to grow. So when I think about the Center for uh, of Arab narratives through the Access Network. Uh, I think about some of the things that you all are going to be able to accomplish by showing representation through storytelling. So talk about your role in this particular uh, position right now, your role uh, in helping to facilitate facilitate storytelling. Sure. I mean, we tell stories through, you know, uh, we work with Arab American National Museum. We collect oral histories and we make sure that we, we capture the the important details in those stories that speak to what's happening today in the community, for instance. We use data to tell stories. You know, the, the data on the Arab and Middle Eastern North African community is quite scant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole other story we can talk about. But we use the data that is available to show how we need more data to really find out what are the issues of this community, what are its health needs, uh, what are the, the economic needs, and but also to celebrate the community's accomplishments and yeah. to talk about where they've come and, and where they're going. Matthew Stifler is the director for the Center of Arab Narratives through the Access Network. And Matthew, I heard a little bit about what you were saying. What 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 right now uh, poses as an issue for collecting data in the community? So according to the federal government, anybody who is Arab or Middle Eastern um, is considered part of the white racial box. And so on the census and other federal forms, um, anybody who says, you know, if they're Yemeni or Palestinian or Lebanese, uh, they select the white box. So they're instructed to select the white box. And then when we get the data back from the federal government, it says, here's all these white people. But it doesn't <laughs> break down that a lot of these white folks are 
are actually of Arab ancestry. Yeah. And we know that, like I said, the Arabs tend to be a younger community. They tend to be more uh, well-educated than the general population. They tend to be more heavily immigrant than the general population. So they have very distinct a very distinct profile um, from the white racial box that we just don't get a full picture of. Yeah. So we're in terms of, you know, taking the next steps federally to get a box that represents uh, those who live underneath that uh, Arab um, umbrella. W- w- where are we at with that? Do you know? We're, we're right on the cusp. Okay. So last year around this time, the federal government uh, asked for comments from the national community about um, the potentially adding a box on the census and other federal forms that says Middle East, North African, separate from the white box. They received well over 10,000 comments in support of that. And the Office of Management and Budget at the federal level, which determines race and ethnicity standards, is reviewing that. And we hope to have some sort of movement this summer that would indicate whether or not they're going to adopt uh, the the so-called MENA box moving forward. So, Matthew, my last question for you here is just a little separate from what we've been talking about, but is just a little bit about what happened yesterday, primary Tuesday, voting day. How big of a deal was it uh, for the uncommitted vote? How big was that? So I think what we saw was we saw the power of a community who's very diverse but can come together around issues that affect themselves and their and their fellow uh, Arab and Middle Eastern community members. And we saw that they used their power in numbers um, to seek change for their community. And I think it was a a very uh, momentous uh, occasion for just seeing how this community has grown. Yes, yes. Once again, I want to say thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Matthew Stifler, Director for the Center of Arab Narratives through the Access Network. Once again, thank you so much for sharing with us. And we would love to have you back on the show to continue these conversations. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. The city of Detroit is asking people to share pictures and personal stories to add to a national register. Religious institutions, businesses, and community centers will also be added. For more information, you can email historic at detroitmi.gov. This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET. And coming up as all eyes in the world of presidential primary elections were on Michigan yesterday. We'll check in on the results here with WDET's Nargis Rahman. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu.
Welcome back to the Metro on 1019 WDET. And coming up on the Metro, nurses and their families are fighting for better nurse to patient ratios. Reporter Kate Wells has that story for us later on the show, but first. But first, the biggest political story right now in Michigan's primary election results and what they might mean for the campaign moving forward. Predictably, President Biden and former President Trump won 81 and 68 percent of the vote, respectively. But the more interesting voting results were in the uncommitted category on the Democratic side. The vote was 13 percent or 100,000 votes for uncommitted. And that was well below Biden's over 600,000 votes. But it's also well over the 10,000 votes the Listen to Michigan campaign was hoping to collect for the uncommitted category. It's important to note this is the highest total in a Michigan primary since 2008 when candidates Barack Obama and John Edwards did not appear on the ballot. Instead, 238,000 voters chose uncommitted in that primary, which Hillary Clinton ultimately won on her way to becoming the nominee in the general election. But what is behind these results we saw yesterday? What were the polls like and what should we make of the primary? To learn more, we have Nargis Rahman. She's a reporter, producer, and filling anchor anchor at WDET. Nargis, welcome to the Metro. Thank you for having me. So you were out there with the boots on the ground talking to people, and you've been covering these elections for a few months now. Tell us what your reaction was initially to the results. So uh, the first thing I want to say is that they, you know, exceeded the expectations by tenfold. And I don't think anyone was surprised that there were more than 10,000 votes, but I don't think anyone was prepared for 100,000 people to show up and vote uncommitted. Uh, When I was in Hamtramck yesterday, people across the board were saying that they voted uncommitted. And they were not only from black and brown communities, they were not only Arab Americans or Muslim voters, but the uncommitted vote uh, seemed to be a resounding way for people to feel like their voice was heard in some way. Mm. Well, I want to unpack that a little bit later. But before we do that, I want to play some audio of interviews from Michigan voters yesterday. I came out to cast my vote um, uncommitted. It felt very important to me to try to send a message to President Biden, who seems likely to be the Democratic candidate this fall, and to push toward doing something to end the genocide in Gaza. I feel like a lot of people were, came out motivated to vote uncommitted. This is the first time I saw that because people were, people just came to vote, not uncommitted. People who never voted before, they came just to vote uncommitted to show their support for what happening and trying to hold responsible the president. I'm extremely disturbed and um, disheartened that my, I've gotten no response from any of my members of Congress um, that show that they would support a ceasefire. I'm hoping that this sends a message to the president, but also sends a message to Democrats overall. You just heard from Henry Chrisman, Tayful Islam, and Julia Sassen. They were, tell us some of the things, uh, also, Nargis, that you heard from when you were out at Hamtramck High School. What were the vibes like from the voters? Well, one thing I noticed is that there was a lot of young voters coming out to vote. And, you know, it is a primary election, so there was a trickle of voters. Some people expressed that they had already voted at the early voting option at City Hall. Something else that is unique in Hamtramck is that there are Bangla and Arabic ballots available. So um, the city has been ramping up efforts to 
get to more voters in the in the city's constituency. That uh, message about voting uncommitted has been translated um, in Bangla and Arabic from the Listen to Michigan campaign. So people were aware about these options as well. Um, it didn't seem that a lot of people were using the ballots per se. However, it, it's important to note that over 40 percent of the voters in Hamtramck are Arab American and about 30 percent or so are of Bangladeshi origin. Um, you know, the city has seen a lot of times people bringing their own translators. But I think the message of how to vote kind of uh, surpassed all of those barriers that are usually present in cities like Hamtramck, where there are large minority populations. And I, I also think that um, what was unique is that people across the board felt the same thing, regardless of what background they came from. And this, I asked residents if it was something to do with living in Hamtramck. Did they feel like that pushed them to vote a certain way? And they said that it wasn't even about that. They were just aware about these issues from a voter perspective. They've been voting. One person mentioned that a lot of her friends were registering to vote yesterday just to vote. And I heard that in, um, you know, across the board from other people, too, as you heard from Tafil Islam, uh, who said people literally just came out to vote uncommitted. Well, it's good to hear people, first of all, getting registered to vote. So I love that. But Nargis, you've heard the phrase correlation is not necessarily causation. And we do realize that in this uh, election where there were a lot of voters who expressed that they were disappointed in uh, the two candidates that they had, could we be extracting too much information from this? The uncommitted vote might be a vote for some out county, especially just saying, hey, Biden's not the guy I want. I want someone else. Not necessarily something specific to the listen to Michigan or uncommitted movement. What would you say to someone who is saying maybe we're extracting a little bit too much from this? I think that it's important to note that Michigan is a state that everyone is looking at right now and looking at as an example of what can happen when grassroots movements come together, when people across faiths, across political spectrums feel a certain way and they they understand that casting a vote is better than not casting a vote at all. And there's a lot in the air. You know, we, we, we could see a lot of change happening before November. Um, it's not to say that whether people will vote for Biden or Trump in the future or if they're going to vote third candidate is also an option. Um, the Council on American-Islamic Relations just put out a press uh, press release or a statement, rather, saying that they did an exit poll with American Muslims, um, and 94 percent of those people said that they voted uncommitted as well. And it's important to note that Muslims come from all kinds of backgrounds. So it is um, a lot of times we'll hear the narrative that Arab Americans are Muslims, and those two groups are the ones kind of leading the the cause in this. However, the uh, the um, notion that we have to do something, even if Biden and Trump are not listening to the concerns of the constituents, it's still important to bring this issue up and, and organize around that across the spectrum from different communities. What's next for the Listen to Michigan campaign? So the next thing that um, they are planning to do is sending a delegate to the Democratic Convention in Chicago that can represent the uncommitted voice. And another thing I wanted to know is that people were here from out of state to see what this campaign was doing and how people were coming out to vote. And some of these efforts are being replicated in other communities that have that uncommitted option. So uh, we don't really know what will happen in November per se. However, I feel like there's going to be a lot of movement coming up in the next few months. All right. Well, Nargis Rahman, reporter, producer, fill-in anchor at WT. What don't you do here? (laughs) Thank you for joining us on the Metro. Thank you.
is the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. Taking a quick look at the weather forecast for you all. Today, expect windy conditions with temperatures continuing to fall. Expect a low around th- uh, 23 degrees tonight. Tomorrow, Thursday, expect a high around 41 with sunny skies. And Friday, partly cloudy with a high near 50. The weekend looks good as well. Saturday and Sunday, we'll have highs in the mid to upper 60s. It is the beginning of March. March 1st is Friday. So we do uh, have spring marching in pretty soon. Spring marching in pretty soon. Such a poet there, Tia. Yeah, you know, that whole idea of uh, if you don't like the weather in Michigan, just wait a little bit longer and it will change. So that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. But, you know, we do have other stories that we wanted to get into. We had mentioned that nursing is something that comes up with a lot of folks. And nurses feel there are not enough of them working in hospitals. They're saying it's putting patient lives at risk. California and Oregon had the same problem, which caused lawmakers in both states to limit the number of patients under a single nurse's care. In Michigan, nurses are pushing for the same thing, and some family members of hospital patients are joining the fight. Reporter Kate Wells has the story. It has been one year since Tim Lillard lost his wife, Anne. She'd get up with me every morning, even though she was retired, and we'd make breakfast together. I mean, we were best friends. Tim is a police detective in a Detroit suburb, and he couldn't stop thinking about that month that Anne spent in the hospital after a COVID infection. Nurses there told him that they were understaffed, and he saw them having to rush constantly from one crisis to the next. Alarms would go off for the medications. They'd come to the room, shut off the alarm when they get low, run to the medication room, come back, set them down, go to the next room, shut off alarms, and that was going on all the time. While she was in the hospital, Anne caught pneumonia and she had to be intubated. But then, finally, Anne seemed to be doing better. Nurses told Tim that they were getting ready to discharge her to a rehab center where she could continue recovering. And then one morning, Tim came in as usual, and a nurse told him Anne had a bad night. When I walked in, they were doing CPR, and our son walked in right after, and at 12.30, they had pronounced and stopped CPR. What Tim couldn't understand was how did Anne go from about to be discharged to dying seemingly overnight? So he started investigating. He talked to nurses, a doctor, hospital administrators, and he says everybody told him the same thing. It could have been sepsis. Sepsis is when an infection in the body triggers a larger chain reaction that can cause organ failure. Some sepsis deaths, though, are preventable if staff can catch it early. But when they don't have enough help, they don't get to spend that time to be able to determine the difference of is it COVID, is it the flu, or is it sepsis? One study found that for every additional patient a nurse had to care for, the mortality rate from sepsis went up 12 percent, which is why one year after Anne's death, Tim went to the state capitol. The House Health Policy will come to order. Would the clerk please take attendance? Tim was there to testify in favor of the Safe Patient Care Act. It would create mandatory nurse-to-patient ratios in Michigan hospitals. It's my belief, had there been nurses adequately staffed, the subtle changes in her health would have been caught and she'd still be alive. Thank you, Mr. Lillard, for that. Over the past year, nurses in states like Washington, Michigan, Minnesota, Maine and Pennsylvania have all pushed for this. They're telling lawmakers that hospitals have tried to save money by keeping staffing levels too low and that that has created a crisis. 
Last year, I coded someone in an ICU for 10 minutes all alone because there was no one to help me. Sometimes up to 11 no patients per nurse. I have been left as the only specially trained nurse to take care of eight babies on the unit, eight fragile newborns. That was Jamie Brown, Rachel Hunt, and Carolyn Clemens. They're all Michigan nurses. Another nurse, Nakia Parker, says she left her full-time job in the ER because of low staffing. And she told Michigan lawmakers, this is not a shortage of nurses. This is a shortage of nurses who are willing to work in these conditions. If the Safe Patient Care Act is passed and we have ratios, I'm one of those nurses who would return to the bedside full-time. And so many of my coworkers that have left would join me. But to many lawmakers, mandatory ratios feel like a really big risk. Michigan Republican State Representative Graham Filler asked, what happens if there just aren't enough nurses? We're going to severely hamper health care in the state of Michigan. I'm talking closed wards because you can't meet the ratio, inability for a hospital to treat an emergent patient. So it feels kind of to me like a gamble we're taking. Michigan hospitals say that if the state starts mandating ratios, they will have to turn patients away. Tim Lillard watched this debate from his seat at the Statehouse hearing. That's a scare tactic, in my opinion, where these hospitals say we're going to have to start closing stuff down. Tim does not think that a single law will magically fix everything. But he says it's gotten to a point where something has to change. The only way these hospitals are going to make any changes and even start moving towards making it better is if they're forced to. So Tim is making this his mission. He doesn't want other families to have to have the same what-ifs. That was reporter Kate Wells reporting on the push for better nurse-to-patient ratios in Michigan hospitals. Coming up on The Metro, a look at what Wayne County is doing to increase its mental health response without police involvement, but right now. Last year, Michigan became the first state in 58 years to repeal its right-to-work law. The law, which was originally enacted in 2012, allowed workers in unionized workplaces to opt out of paying union dues or fees. Proponents of the law say it's unfair to workers to require them to pay union dues while also arguing it helped Michigan look more attractive for businesses looking to open in new locations. On the other side, however, labor groups argue right to work harms workers' abilities to organize by reducing the financial support unions need to properly represent workers. They also argue wage growth is slower in states with these laws versus those without them. Well, in Michigan, we're about to find out because the repeal took effect this month, meaning for this, the first time, Michigan workplaces are no longer governed by the law. So what will it mean for workers, businesses, and unions? To help us answer these questions and share her perspective, we're joined by organizer, scholar, and author Jane McAlevey. Her most recent book is titled Rules to Win By, Power and Participation in Union Negotiations, and she is currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center. Jane, welcome to the Metro. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you because you spent decades as an organizer before earning your Ph.D. So let's just start from here. From your perspective, how big of a deal is Michigan's repeal of right to work? Um, I think it is a big deal. I think it's a big deal because of the climate uh, in which we have found ourselves in the United States, really since the early 70s, about the time, about the about the period of time uh, that Michigan, um, you know, uh, that Michigan, you know, was suffering under the same sort of cloud of really severe um, what we would call union avoidance or union busting. 
um, which began in earnest in the early 1970s. Um, I outlined the, the sort of history of how we returned to that moment in the early 1970s and how much damage was done to the power, really, of workers um, to speak with one voice in this country. So it's a very big deal. It'd be a very big deal if we could get this going in a lot of other states, in the sort of states' rights um, era that we're living in. But yeah. yeah, it is, I mean, I'm just laughing a little bit at sort of what the the rap was about why it's dangerous. And I was reading some of the Chamber of Commerce coverage about it. And, you know, just last I looked, like states like California with Silicon Valley, New York with Wall Street, Massachusetts with a huge medical industrial like none of these states are having a hard time. So the idea that it's going to like set the competitiveness back yeah. of a strong state like Michigan to me is just a ridiculous argument. And yeah. in some ways, the the story just before this about the staffing ratios law, safe, the Safe Patient Care Act and the incredible frustration of Michigan's nurses relates because the stronger a union that the Michigan nurses have the more likely that a desperately needed Safe Patient Care Act is going to actually get passed in the legislature. Yeah. And the more the nurses themselves will come back to the profession, because yeah. that is a storyline in every state where the, you know, employers say they're not going to be able to have enough nurses. And we know, I mean, I've been a nurse union negotiator for decades. Like We know that when the conditions for workers are good, the nurses come back to work, they, their licenses get dusted off immediately yeah. and they come back to work. Yeah, so, and I want to jump in here, Jane, just because yeah. uh, we want to get into some of the arguments that you mentioned the chamber talking about the issues. But before we get into those and your responses to them, some people might be a little confused, like trying to figure out what's the quant how do we quantify the effect of these laws? I mean, we've had 58 years of it across the nation. We've had more than a decade here in Michigan. Is there a way to quantify the effect that these laws have in Michigan or across the country? How would you tell show people uh, the change that happens with Right to Work? Yeah, there, there actually are several reports that have shown a direct link, essentially, this is why Michigan was unusual. Um, essentially, there's a link to red states, like the link between a, a, a politically uh, red state where the governor and the legislature and the Senate um, are all from the Republican Party and have been for generations, which is a lot of um, former slave states uh, in the US South, that in those states, workers have substantially lower pay, substantially lower benefits, uh, tend to work at least two jobs, much more so than in a traditional sort of blue leaning state. And what's what I think is interesting is that because Michigan um, has been in the position of being a, being a swing state, it makes, it makes it a little schizophrenic, right? Like when the right to work law was passed, it was passed in 2012 in Michigan. Um, and it was passed when the state was trifecta red, right. meaning the state house, the Senate and the house um, were all Republican. Uh, same time we were actually putting, you know, allowing lead in drinking water and all sorts of other things in Michigan. So um, the health indicators weren't exactly great. And that's very true. Um, in the Southern right to work. Again, generally, former slave states, there's almost an exact lineup. Um, and there's a relationship, right, between a former slave state and then I think a right to work state. So there are actual statistics that show when there's less worker voice, 
there's much lower wages yeah. and much lower benefits for the workers themselves. And, you know, I'm worried a little bit about about Michigan being uh, so close between yeah. trifecta red and trifecta blue and how schizophrenic that yeah. may Huh, well, let's, we need to, let me just jump yeah. in a little bit here, Jane, because I do want to make sure to touch on some of these arguments that are against it and give you an opportunity to respond. So one of the things I hear about is fairness. What's your response to those who say it's unfair to require workers to pay dues, effectively making it a condition of employment? Yeah, it's unfair to make everyone pay taxes, too, and that's what it takes to run a democracy. I mean, a union is a small, mini-sized democracy, small-d democracy, um, in the workplace. Mm. And to get the kind of high quality representation, including what those nurses are trying to do right now, right, to make the profession better and patient outcomes better, um, you need to have some financial resources. And the employers, you know, I ran a union in a right to work state um, for four years, many years ago. And the employers were basically on a daily campaign to get workers to drop union dues. I mean daily. And so the unfairness of that scenario where an employer walks up to you, your manager walks up to you and says to a, a worker who's going to be intimidated by that, it'd be great if you dropped your union dues. It's like the counterweight to an employer having like a mini captive audience, you know, of a one-on-one or in a group meeting, a team meeting, telling all of the workers in their unit to drop their union dues and then making it clear that they're going to look at their names, yeah. you know, and see yeah. if they have is a lot of intimidation. Yeah. And so... You know, that that's one good argument is that who's whose fairness are we talking about? You know, I appreciate that, Jane, because thinking of it like a mini democracy, it's something that I don't hear come up a lot. But, yeah, it takes all of us together. And I wish I could keep you forever. I know I can't. But uh, I just want to leave you with one last question, give you an opportunity with this historic change. What do you believe should be the next steps for unions and workers here in Michigan now that we've repealed our right to work law? Well, one is passing the Safe Patient Care Act, which I was just hearing about. Uh, actually, an incredibly important law that is pro-union, pro-worker, pro-patient. And that's how, that's truthfully what a lot of strengthening a union, of course, we know there are bad ones, but there's a lot of really good ones. And I think of a good union as a good housekeeping seal of approval. The environment is better, workers feel better, and the outcome for either patients um, or consumers in general is going to be better and stronger. Um, and there's a lot of studies about that, too. So, you know, I think it's, it makes a better Michigan, frankly. Yeah, That's yeah. what's going to happen. I appreciate the perspective so much. Jane McAlevey, organizer, scholar, author, and senior policy fellow at the University of California's Berkeley Labor Center. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. My pleasure. Good to be here. Thank you. Coming up, we'll hear a conversation between WDET's Russ McNamara and former Congressman Andy Levin about the Listen to Michigan campaign and Levin's hopes that it will have an impact on the president. That plus more is coming up on the Metro. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET, where I am Nick Austin, and I'm joined by Tia Graham. Looking forward to a conversation we are going to have about mental health response 
increasing in Detroit. But first, this Friday, the Michigan Science Center will host an event with a laser light show set to the music of Bad Bunny. Get tickets for this adult event at misci.org. Next week, visitors to the Michigan Science Center are invited to participate in Brain Health Awareness Day with a Brain Day event on March 9th. Attendees can check out an actual human brain and participate in hands-on brain experiments. Admission to the center is required. Tia, an actual human brain, not uh, a fake one. You know, I, you know, I'm down for that. I love science. I love that. My, my, my big thing right now is Bad Bunnies, but, you know, down for a laser show featuring Bad Bunny. However, right now, across the country and the state, officials are responding to mental, mental health crises and have gotten a lot of attention. That's partly because much of the public is looking for non-police responses to a range of problems people face. And that's what they've gotten. Around Michigan, co-responders or mental health experts paired with police officers have been called into the field to help people struggling with a range of issues. In Washtenaw County, there are units that send mental health providers into the field without police involvement in particular instances. Wayne County has been expanding its mental health response with four mobile crises units that began rolling out under the Detroit Wayne Integrated Health Network in December. To talk about the program now is Grace Wolf. She is the Vice President of Crisis Care Services for the Detroit Wayne Integrated Health Network. Grace, welcome to the Metro. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So who are the mental health responders going into the field right now? Are they social workers or clinicians? Uh, What kinds of backgrounds do they have? Sure. So our mobile crisis units are actually made up of two staff members. One of the staff is a licensed clinician, and the other staff member is a peer support or peer recovery coach, so an individual with lived experience who may have used the mental health or substance use system themselves. So in some areas of the state, mental health officials are going into the field without police officers. Is this what's happening right now in Wayne County? Yes. So we uh, boost our mobile crisis teams off of the SAMHSA national model for crisis care. And so our mobile crisis units do not respond with law enforcement. They respond as that two-person unit and assist the individual in the community wherever they may be. So what has been the caseload like? Like recently when you all are getting some of these calls in, mental health crisis calls have gone up in the past year in Detroit especially. How often are mental health responders in the field responding to people in crisis? So I think one thing that's really great about this program is that it's an addition to. So as you kind of mentioned, there are co-response programs already going on in Wayne County where we have social workers embedded into 911 call systems or into actual law enforcement uh, dispatches that are going out. And so this is an addition to. And so we're just adding another resource for folks in Wayne County. And so right now um, we have responded to 30 different dispatches across Wayne County. And uh, we are happy to say that we have diverted 87% of those dispatches away from the emergency department and been able to keep the individual safely in our community. So right now, are there any plans to increase this program beyond what we're seeing right now, especially with the mobile units? Do we see more mobile units coming in the future, both the time that it's in the operation as well as the number? Once again, those mobile units, are we going to see any any uh, uh, adjustments? Yes, definitely. So we are rolling this program out in phases. This is the first of its kind in Wayne County. And so we started with phase one in December, which was our adult rollout. And that was Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. I'm really happy to say that two weeks ago we added in child and adolescent services. So now we are able to respond to crisis calls of all ages. 
And uh, we are still responding 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., but starting the week of March 4th, so coming up right here now, uh, we will be adding in Saturday and Sunday hours. So starting the week of March 4th, um, we will respond to a call, anyone of any age located in Wayne County, seven days a week from 8 a, or excuse me, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. And I just want to expand on that just a little bit, the addition of teens and kids. Uh, how does this help or how will this help alleviate some of that extra pressure or stress uh, with, with kids being entered into the system in terms of like juvenile detention uh, centers? Sure. So, you know, our goal is always to divert away from hospitals and jails, and that includes our our children and our adolescents. I think we see the biggest impact with our school system. Um, So, you know, a teacher or school counselor can call the mobile units. Um, Oftentimes we have kind of a consent ahead of time for parents to uh, allow those school staff to be able to call mobile crisis and mobile crisis will respond to a school and be able to assist in providing an intervention there. And so I think that's really where we see the biggest impact come in. And really it's, you know, I look at it as kind of a pre-intervention. We're trying to get to folks before they enter our system, before they go to a hospital, before they go to a jail, um, and keep them safely in our community and be able to provide resources on the spot wherever they may be. Grace Wolf is the Vice President of Crisis Care Services for the Detroit Wayne Integrated Health Network. Grace, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. And just a heads up, the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week Detroit Wayne Integrated Health Network's crisis hotline. That number is 800 241 4949. It's 800-241-4949. You can also reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 988. This is the Metro and coming up, we'll listen to a conversation from WDET's Russ McNamara with former Congressman Andy Levin and the Listen to Michigan campaign. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. Right now, former Congressman Andy Levin has been supporting the Listen to Michigan campaign uh, that asked voters to mark uncommitted on their Democratic presidential primary ballot. The hope is that Biden calls for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. The campaign exceeded expectations, getting more than 90,000 votes than they anticipated. Former Congressman Andy Levin told WDET's Russ McNamara at a Dearborn event last night he hopes the Listen to Michigan campaign will have its intended effect on the president and that in the long run, it will only serve to help Biden's chances in November. I'm not surprised. I was trying to maintain my message discipline for us. I mean, this campaign has been incredible and the people organizing this have done such a fabulous, fabulous job. Well, this is right up your alley. This is this is grassroots. This is happening in three weeks. This is so grassroots. This is so organic. This is such uh, an example of people turning a tragic situation, a situation that they're so upset about, into a really important moment for American democracy. We Michiganders are a must win for to be to win the presidency on November fifth. Certainly for a Democrat. Uh, Maybe the Republicans have some other electoral college map. I don't know. But as a Democrat, 
we got to win Michigan. And Joe Biden is going to be our nominee. And I'm so proud of him in many ways about other things. But I just don't think the people around him, his campaign, realize that there is no political solution to the Gaza problem in Michigan in terms of him winning in November. There are too many Arab Americans and other Muslims and African Americans, other people of color and young people all together, just progressives, who are super upset about this. So you can't send advisors, right? You can't send surrogates. Our, our own wonderful governor is a great surrogate for him, right? The vice president, whoever he might send. That's not the nature of the problem. You have to actually change course. You have to get a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. You have to begin a diplomatic offensive to end the occupation and achieve self-determination for the Palestinian people alongside self-determination for the Jewish people. And, you know, there is no hope for a secure, peaceful future for the Jewish people of, of Israel until and unless we realize the political and human rights of the Palestinian people. Michigan's primary ahead of Super Tuesday. Do you feel like the ramification, the attention this is getting here in Michigan and across the country tonight, do you think that's going to spread when it comes to Super Tuesday? I think there is now a national uncommitted movement, a national movement built based on Listen to Michigan. But, you know, Russ, I don't know a lot about all that. I'm just a Michigan guy who looked at our situation here. We're one of not very many states that puts uncommitted on the ballot in every presidential primary because these primaries about, are about sending, technically, delegates to conventions, right? So you can send uncommitted delegates. We have that, and we have this huge community that was so upset, and these organizers realized that this was a moment to send a message. And my me here's the thing why... I feel like this is good for the president. Imagine, so now we're learning how upset people are, right? Imagine if this campaign didn't exist. The president wouldn't get the message. Literally, we wouldn't have sent him the message, right? It's not like people wouldn't have been upset. <laughs> they, because the alter, I bet not 5% of people who voted uncommitted would have otherwise voted for the president in the primary, maybe even 2%. People who voted uncommitted would have stayed home. They would have stayed home. And that's what we can't afford in our democracy. We, what I said to people over and over was, don't stay home. Don't stay home. Are you angry at the president? Are you frustrated? Are you tearing your hair out? Are you crying over Gaza? Tell him. Go to the polls and tell him. Go to your, your you know, local precinct and vote. After all, this is a primary with no drama. Aside this, I guess we have a lot. But aside from this, right, we have an incumbent Democratic president we're otherwise proud of. He's going to be our nominee. There is no question about that. And so how tragic would it have been if he goes sailing along towards the nomination, not realizing what a big political problem this is for him. So I, I really insist, Russ, this is, tonight is good for Joe Biden because I feel like he must change course in order to win Michigan. 
And so if this can help the, the president realize this or, or his, the folks who work for him, that would be a real positive outcome for the president and for his chances at re-election. That's former Congressman Andy Levin. He spoke with WDET's Russ McNamara. This is The Metro, where I'm Nick Austin, and right now I'm speaking with Tia Graham. Indeed hey, Tia. Indeed you are. Hello, Nick. And I just want to say, on this day in 1966, the Detroit Pistons basketball team moved to Cobo Arena, marking a new chapter in the city's sports history. As well, today is the uh, 2004 championship uh, winner, Tayshawn Prince's birthday. He's 44 today. So just a little connection there about what's happening in the city of Detroit today. History. Right on, right on Tia. And I'm thinking about what's happening today. In the groove. Yeah, speaking of ballers, Ryan Patrick Hooper <laughs> see, here. See, you see how I did that? I had to bring in a baller to talk about ballers, you know? Uh-huh. Well, you know, I come from a long line of Hoopers. Obviously, my yes. father is the Pistons mascot and yes. his father before yes. he. Yes. Um, it's a long tradition here. Listen, guys, today, the main focus on In the Groove, it's going to be a little moody. You know, yesterday I pivoted. The weather was so beautiful that we just turned it into a, a dance party because somebody... Shuffling. They sent me a picture of their speaker hanging out their window, blasting out into the street. And I said, "Okay, I will give you the programming that you need. But now that the weather has dipped, we're going to get a little moody and we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on the Hamtramck blowout, which is coming up this week. 150 bands, over 16 venues, the sound of the city in Hamtramck. And that's coming up on In the Groove here at noon on WDET. Thanks, Ryan. And that's the Metro for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. You can listen to the recent episodes online at WDET.org. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. The show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Philbranch. Our technical director is Nate Bender. Music is done by Sam Bolbian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn. And our program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. This is WDET-FM, Detroit Public Radio, your connection to news, music and conversation thanks for listening WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.